Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Saturday, September the 2nd, 2023. It is currently 3.34 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. Well, when one thing ends, another thing begins, right? And we ended a very... I will say in-depth study of the book of Jeremiah. We did well over probably close to 70 hours of teaching on the book of Jeremiah in about a three-month period. Now, you you could look for mistakes and you can critique it. Not everything was perfect. Not everything was, you know, as even as I would have wanted it to be. But I think we did a very good job with taking the book of Jeremiah apart and dealing with very important theological issues contained within the book. Issues that deal not only with hermeneutics, but issues that also deal with eschatology. I thought, and we dealt with a lot of issues that kind of deal with philosophy. And and so I think we did a pretty good job. We stayed, we tried to cover as much of the text as possible. We asked practical questions. We try to understand historical context. We try to put verses in context. I think we did a, I think we did a pretty good job, but that's over now. That's over. That's over. The book of Jeremiah is over. Our summer of 2023 study of the book of Jeremiah concluded on August the 31st. Here we are, September the 2nd. So the next question is, where are we headed? From here, well, today I'm going to preview where we are headed, and I hope you're going to be somewhat excited about it, and I hope it's going to be beneficial. And to try to explain where we're going, you're going to have to use your imagination because this isn't a video podcast, right? This is an audio podcast. But to try to explain where we are going, well, listen carefully. See if you 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 can tell me what this is. Can you tell? You probably can't tell, right? You can't tell. Uh, I will tell. It's a box. I will tell you that it's a box. It's black with some gold lettering. There, there is something in white right here at the top of this box. It says anniversary edition. Anniversary edition. I have the anniversary edition of something that's in a box. The box is black with some gold lettering. At the bottom, it says, are you ready? Classic edition. So it's the anniversary edition. It's the classic edition. See if this helps you. 1917 notes. Whatever is contained inside this box, it has the 1917 notes. Somebody wrote some notes in 1917, and I have those notes contained inside this box. Now, if I was to open this box, it's open. Inside the box contains something that has those 1917 notes in it. Now, you can probably hear this. All right, so immediately that tells you that there is a book of some sort inside this box. And obviously this book contains notes that were written in 1917. Does that, does that give you any clue? Does it? 
Well, what is inside this box, ladies and gentlemen, is the old Schofield Study Bible, the anniversary edition, King James Version, classic edition, 1917 notes. And this Bible and those notes that are contained within this Bible, well, they are very famous for making a system, a theological system, we can say mainstream, by taking a theological system and bringing it to the forefront, and that system is known as dispensationalism. And ladies and gentlemen, this is the preview of the next series that we are about to undertake here on the Theology Central podcast, and that next series is going to be an in-depth study of dispensationalism. And we will begin that Tomorrow morning at Victory Baptist Church at 10 a.m., we will continue our study of dispensationalism at the 11 a.m. worship hour, and then we will turn around and continue it at the 6 p.m. evening service. So all day tomorrow at Victory Baptist Baptist Church in Ovalo, Texas, it will be dispensationalism, dispensationalism, dispensationalism. Now, the way we're going to begin the series tomorrow is, is is not going to be the typical way. We're going to do a little bit of time travel, right? We're going to go back to the 1900s and we're going to we're going to pretend that we were a Christian, let's say in 1917. Now, the same idea would work. You could pretend you were a Christian in the 1980s or the 1990s. You could pretend that you are a brand new Christian in 2023, but we're going to pretend that you are a new Christian and you happen to get your hands on, you buy the Schofield Study Bible and you have no clue. You don't know anything about theology. You don't know anything about hermeneutics. You don't even know what hermeneutics is. You may not even really know what systematic theology is, but you buy this Bible. We're going to pretend, we're going to create a scenario where you're a brand new person picking up this Bible and we're going to kind of walk through how, what it would feel to initially discover this system known as dispensationalism. So that is what we're going to be doing tomorrow. And we're going to be doing for the, for the foreseeable future as we do a pretty in-depth study on dispensationalism so that you know exactly what it teaches. Yes, I know there's different forms of dispensationalism. Some refer to things as ultra dispensationalism or moderate dispensationalism or classic dispensationalism. We're just going to go kind of more with just the classic idea of dispensationalism, realizing that there are, you know, different modifications. And because with any system, the initial system is taught and then people modify it and change and adjust and, and different forms of it appear. So we're aware of that, but just knowing the classic idea of dispensationalism. Now we're going to present it more like here is what it is. We will then make critique judgments of it as we move through what maybe we agree, maybe what we disagree. And just remember, this is very key because for some weird reason, people have yet to figure this out about me, not only in my church, but here on the podcast. I am not in any way, shape or form beholden to a team. I'm not beholden to a system. Because see, so many times people will say, well, which system are you? What do you hold to? And if I say it, then within minutes, someone's going to get mad because I don't stay true enough to that system. 
I, I can't stand the whole system idea. And we're going to be talking about that here in a minute. So guess what? Uh, when I go through it, there's going to be people who are non-dispensational who are going to get very mad at me. And there's going to be people who are dispensational. They're going to get mad at me because typically what happens, no matter what I cover, everyone gets mad because I just don't regurgitate what what I'm supposed to say based off which team is listening to me. I, I don't I don't care about your team. I don't care about your system. I care about pursuing truth at all costs. That's what I try to do. And 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 we're going to talk about that in, in greater detail. So here's what I would challenge you to do to get ready. So for this episode, we're just doing a preview of what we're going to be doing. So here's how to start. First, I would really please today, if you don't have one in your house, go out, go to Home Depot, Office Depot, or not Home Depot, Office Depot, um, wherever, wherever, um, I don't know all the different places, uh, uh, wherever you can find some notebooks, Walmart, Target. Wh- well, I mean, you can't go to Target because you know that that would be, you would be committing some grave sin, right? Okay. So I'm not even supposed to say, okay, making a little bit of a joke there. Go somewhere where notebooks are, are bought or sold and purchase a notebook. I always prefer pencil. But at this point, I've given up trying to convince people of, of how correct and right it is to use pencil because too many people are sinners and rebels. But, but get a notebook and get some pencils and, uh, and just have it brand new, ready to go. Right? And, just, and you can put Dispensationalism 101, Dispensationalism 101 on your notebook. You can do that. And then if you can, like, I don't know where, what's low. I don't know what's available in your local area. If you can, I would challenge you to get a physical copy of the old Schofield study Bible with the 1917 notes. If you can get a physical copy, I don't know where, if you have any uh, stores near you that sell Bibles, but if they have an old Schofield, I would say have it. Even if you disagree with dispensationalism, it's good just as a reference tool, just as a historical record, right? So I would challenge you to get the physical, but if you can't get the physical, you can't find one and you can't get one here before tomorrow, or you don't have the money, there are some other options. If you go to most, uh, I know this is true on the Apple App Store. If you go to the Google Play Store, you should be able to find an app that's called the Schofield Reference Bible. Some of sometimes you'll have to do a, a, a search for Schofield Reference Bible Notes. Now, some of the apps are, are pretty good. Some of them are okay. Um, it says, I'm going to do it later. Okay, uh, I'm going to hang on. There we go. Um the one I downloaded here, in fact, I'm going to try to see if I can describe the one I downloaded, um, because if I can, if I can point you in the right, if I, if I can point you in the right direction, I did a search for Schofield Reference Bible Note, and the one that I picked is called Schofield Reference Bible Note. All right. It's kind of a white background with a brown Bible that says Schofield Reference Bible. And then there's something laying over it kind of turned to the side. Right. So, yeah, Schofield Reference Bible. It's kind of got like a little red tab at the top. Um, And um, this one, this one, I I tried a bunch. This one works best. And the reason this one works best is like I'm currently looking at Genesis. I hit over here in the top left-hand corner, there's those three little lines telling me that it will do a drop-down menu, and I can just say, switch to commentary, 
and boom, there is all of the study notes in the study Bible, and I can just read one note after the other, and I can switch back, obviously, to the Bible. It's very easy. There are some ads at the bottom. They're not too intrusive. They don't have even a a way to pay to go to a premium to get rid of ads. Most of the others have ads that pop up all all the time, and you got to pay like $4 or $5 to get rid of the ads. This one I think works pretty good. You should be able to find one. Just the one, what you want is not just obviously the Bible. You want to make sure you have the notes and hopefully you have the 1917 notes. So you can look on the app stores, find the one you think. If you're using an Apple device, you can email me newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. And I can email you. I think I can email you a link directly from the app store. Yes, I can. I can copy the link and email it to you of the one that I found to work best for me. You may may agree or disagree, but this is the one that works best for me. If you have that, then when I'm referencing notes from the Schofield Reference Bible, you can see them for yourself. So therefore, you can verify the information you're hearing to ensure that nothing is being taken out of context or I'm not being accurate or fair. So I would get you a notebook, pencil, And at least, if you can, get a physical copy of the Schofield Reference Bible. If you can, I think everyone should have one. Look, whether you hate it, whether you agree or disagree, you cannot deny the influence dispensationalism has had on at least American evangelicalism, and you could argue on the church globally. I mean, there's no way to get around the significance of the system. Now, and we'll talk about the origins of the system. We'll talk about what was happening right there in 1907. 1917, 1925, some maybe somewhat significant dates, especially for the Schofield Reference Bible. And we'll look at some of those things or what was happening going on in our world, especially if you go from like 1907 to say 1940. Um, I mean, there was a lot happening from like, say, you go from 1907 to maybe through World War II. And then, of course, we know 1948, something really significant happens with the nation of Israel, right? So you can see why this system could be absolutely influential. And this is what drives me crazy is sometimes people in the the pew, and this really drives me crazy, people who sit in the pew. In many cases, they've never gone to seminary, never gone to Bible college. Maybe they've done very just minimal study. Like it would be hard for them to even classify that they've done deep, deep, serious theological study or study about church history. They will argue with you. They will tell people that they are wrong. They will act like that they are an expert. But in many cases, they don't even realize that what they're doing is that they are just regurgitating some system that they've been given. They were taught a system of theology and they think that they're actually studying the Bible, but all they really are doing is they are just reading their system in the scriptures. Like they were taught a system. They don't know the system because in many cases, someone doesn't come along and clearly identify the system. And some churches they do, but whether you, whether you know the system or don't know the system, you're being influenced by systems of theology and those systems of theology literally become the lens through which you read scripture. So then without knowing it, inadvertently, you don't mean to do this. 
You see your system in the scripture because you're reading it into the scripture. You think you're finding it in the scripture, but you were taught the system and then they proof text it, right? They say, oh, here's what we believe. Look at this verse. See, doesn't it agree? And then you're like, well, yeah, that looks, that sounds good. And you say, amen. And then from that moment forward, every time you see that verse or that verse or that verse, you just immediately see your system and you think you're right. And then the minute some pastor questions it or challenges it, then you go, no, 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 you're wrong. And you're like, I'm wrong based off what? Based off your in-depth study, exegetical study of the text, or based off the fact that you can't see that text apart from the system that was given to you. It becomes your presuppositional default. And people have a hard time realizing that. So first, the only way to correct that is first, you've got to identify all the systems. You need to know the systems, whether it's covenant theology, whether it's dispensationalism, whatever the system is of of theology, you've got to identify the systems. And then you have to tell yourself, when I study the text, I don't bring my system with me. Even if it's a system you hold to, even if it's a system you find dear, even if it's a system that you think is 1000% right, you You have to set aside the system. If you do not, you will forever see the system because you're reading it into the text. And I don't care how much you tell me you're not doing that. Now, my thing is the systems are fine to learn, like they're great to learn. Covenant theology, dispensationalism, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether it's, you know, the the distinction of law and gospel, whether it's, uh, you know, amillennialism, all of these different theological concepts, they they become a system. And without you realizing it, that system becomes your default hermeneutic. And you don't even realize that the system is determining how you're interpreting the scripture. When in reality, your interpretation of scripture is what should formulate your system. But it's so hard. It's like we're chasing our tail and we don't really know which is coming first. That's why I always try to tell people, all right, we're going to be studying this text. Now, guess what? Ladies and gentlemen, here's what we need to do. We need to take our presuppositions, code for, you need to take your theological system that you've been taught. I don't care who taught it to you. I don't care how wonderful you think it is. We've got, and I say this, and I know, I don't say this to be shocking, but I try to say it to get the point across. You got to take, and, and, I, and I typically refer to these systems as fluffy. They're like our favorite pet. Oh, we love Fluffy. Fluffy makes us feel safe. Fluffy makes us feel secure. Fluffy gives us some sense of certainty. We've got to take Fluffy. We got to walk out behind the building and you got to put Fluffy down. Fluffy has to die. Fluffy's got to go. Now, I know it's hard to put down your favorite Fluffy. It's hard to put down your favorite system. But for the study of the text, the system has to go. After your study, then guess what? You can go out back behind the building and you can pick up Fluffy. And guess what? If what you studied the text, you come to the conclusion that Fluffy was right, great. Revive Fluffy and carry Fluffy Fluffy around with you. But you know what you may find time and time again is that the in-depth study of scripture, being open and honest and setting aside presuppositions, is you'll find sometimes that your interpretation no longer fits your system.
And it may not fit that system. And sometimes you'll find yourself feeling like you're a man with no country. You're a person with no, you're a woman with no country. Because guess what? Sometimes you may go, okay, I agree with this. And then other times like, I don't agree with this. And then people, and then guess what? You'll get shot at from, from everyone because they, because what everyone wants you to do is you pick a team and that's the team you stay with. You never question it. You never doubt it. And you just regurgitate the system. I hate that. So we're going to study dispensationalism and I'm going, and whenever I study these systems, I don't try to study it in order to promote the system, whether I agree with it or disagree with it. If we're studying the London Baptist Confession of Faith, right, of 1689, which is a major confession for our church, guess what? Whenever we study it, I don't care. I will critique, I will criticize, and I will even disagree if I so desire to. We study the creeds, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed. Guess what? If I want to critique it, I will, because I'm not beholden to any system. This is so important. So we're going to be studying dispensationalism, but we're not going to do it the way most churches. Most churches would either, we're going to study dispensationalism because we disagree with it. So we're going to critique it and we're going to destroy it. And others were like, we're going to teach dispensationalism because we believe it. I'm going to say, hey, here's this system. Let's consider it. And we're going to consider it. At wit. Listen, because according to our, our entire idea as non-Catholics is that the true authority is supposed to be the Bible. So we're not bound to the system. So we're going to approach the system when the system tells us to look at the text. We're going to go look at the text and we're going to be, we're going to say, well, does this work? Does this not work? I don't know. What, what, how does this? And we're going to question and challenge. So guess what? I'm going to end up making everyone mad. But I just don't understand why Christians are so committed. We claim that we're committed to the Bible, but in reality, we're committed to systems, but we don't see how we do that. People are like, well, I don't know all of that stuff. And then you start hearing them talk going, you may not know the systems, <laughs> but clearly you've been influenced. Ignorance of a system does not negate its influence upon you. Ignorance of church history does not negate its influence upon you. So we have to identify the system and then we have to ensure we do everything in our power that that system no longer serves as a hermeneutical presupposition that we operate from. Whenever I come to the Bible, I try to set aside everything I've ever been taught. I try to set aside everything that I've learned. And like today, I'm going to approach the text again. Like we studied Jeremiah, all the conclusions and ideas I came to this time. If I study Jeremiah four years from now, I am not going to rely on one note, one, one audio file or anything from the past. We will approach it in a, like a new way and, and, and a fresh way without relying on any past information. I never rely on past information. Why? Because now that just becomes a presupposition. So for our preview, I've told you what you possibly need to get started. You don't really need anything else. No book, pencils. If you can get a physical copy of the Schofield Reference Bible, that would be good. If not, download the uh, an app for the Schofield or uh, so Schofield Reference Bible Notes, and uh, you should be able to find that online. If you cannot, email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. For all of your Android uh, phone users, um, 
I can't send you anything. I guess I could do a search in the Google Play Store and see if I could find it. So um, I, I, I will look. I will look. I will look. Uh, just if you can't find it, email me and I will do everything in my power to find it for you. Okay. I'll drive to your house and say, give me your phone. Here you go. All right. Just so that you have it. But if you can find, hey, it's Saturday, right? Go, go, go search the city in which you live. Find a scope. There's probably an old used bookstore somewhere that, you know, probably could use your business. Go see if they have an old Schofield reference Bible somewhere, uh, because a lot of those old used bookstores, they have lots of interesting things if you're willing to go look and see what you can find. Sometimes you can find some really cool stuff there, but I digress, all right? But here's what I want to do. As I was thinking about this, because this is going to be, and I am going to repeat this, I'm going to repeat this a lot, all right? Especially, I'm going to repeat it probably a I don't know how much tomorrow you're going to hear this, but over the next couple of weeks, you're going to hear this a lot because because I am concerned how theological systems basically tell us how to exegete or interpret the Bible. So I found an article, and I don't know what year it was written. They do have a, a kind of a little funny cartoon of a dog running in circles chasing its tail. And I'm like, wow, that is Christians. That is Christians. But it's just so funny. Christians who can't, who've never studied systems, they still think they always know the, they always act like that they know everything. It's just, it's so frustrating sometimes because you'll start arguing with someone and you just realize within a minute, oh, you don't really want to argue the text. You're, you're committed to a system and you can't see the text apart from that system. And the minute you realize that's the case, there's no point in having a conversation. You just will just, you know, if you're a pastor, you just will take the person, walk them to the front door of the church and go, there's the front door. There's the parking lot. Go find a church that supports your system because you're not really interested in the actual text of scripture because all you, all you're doing is arguing the system. And when many people argue with a the pastor, they don't really exegete the, the text. They run and look up online an article that supports their system and then they regurgitate the article that they found online or the book and it's like all you're doing is giving me you're you're not even dealing with the text and that's because the church primarily Christians operate from systems theological systems that become their map to biblical hermeneutics let's see how this article describes it This says this, the article says this, our theological system should not tell us how to exegete the Bible. Our theological system should not tell us how to exegete the Bible. And I completely agree. It should not tell us how to exegete the Bible. What we should do is whenever we come to the text, first try to figure it out the most, the best we can. And then at some point, it's perfectly okay to say, hey, this text, well, if you if you're operating if you're looking at it from an amillennial position, well, that's not the nation of Israel, that's the church. If you're looking at it maybe from a more dispensational perspective, it's okay to see how the different systems interpret it, but you don't allow those systems to tell you how to exegete. They're not the guide. They're not the they're not the magisterium. See what a lot of people have done is they've rejected the Catholic Church. They're like, hey, the Catholic Church, I don't need a magisterium in how to interpret the Bible. That's what they claim. But they've only replaced the magisterium of the Catholic Church with the magisterium of a theological system or the magisterium of another pastor or another denomination or another confession of faith, which now tells them how to exegete the Bible. 
So we're no better than a Catholic. We've just replaced the magisterium with our own chosen magisterium, our own chosen pope. And there's all kind. Look, there's not just the major systems. For example, someone who holds to lordship salvation. That's a system. That's a theological system. And you will interpret scripture through that lens when it comes to salvation. If you have a proper distinction between law and gospel, going back to CFW Walther or Melanchthon or anybody in, in church history, you're going to read text completely different than someone who doesn't understand the proper distinction between law and gospel or who doesn't care about that. You're, in other words, if everyone's looking at it from a system, now, I got no problem at some point going, hey, this is how I'm looking at the scriptures. But you've got to be willing to acknowledge because I've been influenced by the system. All right. But our theological system should not tell us how. I got no, I got no problem looking to them to go, oh, this is how they do so. This is how they do so. And see, if I can't figure it out, maybe I have to rely on one of these systems. But I got to at least know what I'm doing. All right, here, here is how they, they describe this. Here we go. A theological system ought to be the product of exegetical study of Scripture, not a preface to exegetical work. A theological system ought to be the product of exegetical study of Scripture, not a preface to exegetical work. Now, that's the way it should work, right? You would think, okay, someone studied the Bible, and then they developed this theological system. And maybe in their minds they did, but here's the problem. When you come along, and you learn the theological system, and then you start interpreting the Bible on the basis of that theological system, then guess what? It has become a preface to your exegetical work. It has become now the, the, it's become the system in which you're exegeting from because you've adopted the system. It's, you've, you've got to realize in theory, we want to go, well, I don't care if it's covenant theology. I don't care if it's dispensationalism. I don't care if it's amillennialism. I don't care if it's lordship. I don't care if it's law and gospel. I, whatever the system is, you always want to think that the original people studied their Bible, studied their Bible. And then from their exege exegetical work, they develop their system. Even if it's true, what happens, you come along, you learn the system, and now that becomes how you exegete scripture. Rarely do you set the system aside, go study the Bible, and then test the system. No, you start interpreting the Bible in light of the system. Because as a Christian, when you start going to church, you're immediately being taught a system, whether it's ever properly identified or not. You're being taught a system about salvation, and those that system becomes the uh, the the guide to your exegetical work or to you how you exegete the Bible. A theological system ought to be the product of exegetical study of Scripture, not a preface to exegetical work. Hermeneutical principles are first observed in the Scriptures themselves, even in a cursory and casual reading. These principles are then applied in actual study of the text in the exegetical process. So we should derive our hermeneutical principles from the text. Now, I would go a little bit here with Augustine. I think our hermeneutical principles are first taught 
when we first learn how to read and we first learn how to handle things in a written format. I kind of go with Augustine here. We, we studied Augustine. We didn't make it. We didn't finish that study. I wish we would have uh, because it was just so complicated and trying to keep everyone on the same page. But um, so I, I, I would say we we are the, the principles, hermeneutical principles we derive when we first start learning how to read and how to put words together and learn meaning and, and maybe how to, you know, uh, take a, a sentence apart, right? How to, how to, you know, Diagram a sentence and understanding verb and noun and, 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 you know, adjective and, and, and an action verb and all of those different concepts. We start learning those things about how to break it down, how to interpret way, in many cases, way before we ever even touch a Bible. So I, I think that's where we really start deriving them a little bit. Now, here we go. This important order of principles and process is one reason that it is a bit of a misnomer to refer to a dispensational hermeneutic. Now, I would stop right here, and I'm going to disagree a little bit here. But at least they're at least they're bringing this issue up. I'm just reading. I just chose this article because it at least brings up these issues that I think are important in our preview. Because we're going to be talking about dispensationalism. You start talking about dispensationalism, you will start acknowledging or start talking about a dispensational hermeneutic. There's just no there's no way to get around it. They say it's not really fair to call it that. I'm going to disagree. Every system becomes a mean a becomes a means of hermeneutics whether we like it or not if you talk lordship salvation that becomes a hermeneutic you just got to acknowledge that you see a scripture and you're going to interpret one way about salvation i'm going to be like what are you talking about well you're reading it through the lens of of a lordship hermeneutic and i may be reading it from a non-lordship hermeneutic and so we're going to come to different conclusions we got to just realize that now, he's saying we shouldn't really necessarily refer to it as a dispensational hermeneutic. He says this, dispensational thinkers claim that they're at least attempting to consistently apply a literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic to, to the biblical text. Now, I do think that that's true. I think typically in dispensationalism, the reason I will say that's Israel, that's land, that's Babylon that's not the church, as I do agree, is because I am trying to follow through utilizing a literal grammatical historical hermeneutic. I will argue that I believe the literal, literal grammatical, his, uh, literal, literal grammatical historical hermeneutic, I do believe, I would argue, is my herm, hermeneutical argument for certain elements of dispensationalism. Right? I would argue that, but I just got to be careful because I can say, hey, 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 I'm using the literal, I'm going to read it, read it again, the literal grammatical historical hermeneutic. Therefore, I'm agreeing with certain elements of dispensationalism, but I got to be careful because at some point then, w- without even knowing it, it's no longer the historical grammatical, it's no longer the literal um grammatical historical hermeneutic that's guiding me. It's now the dispensationalism that's guiding me. Well, that would be a problem because now my theological system is telling me how to exegete the Bible. It's it's a fine line how that can flip. You can be like, no, no, everyone. I use a literal grammatical historical hermeneutic. But if you're not careful, that can flip 
and you're actually using your dispensationalism to interpret the Bible. That's when it becomes a problem. Now, you could, we could get into an argument. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Isn't literal, grammatical, historical, hermeneutic a system? It is a system. So you even got to be careful there, right? I, what I like to try to do is we go, first we go to the text and we just read the text, understanding the text based off all the typical ways in which we're taught to read, right? How do we understand the words? How do we understand the, the historical context? How do we understand the textual context? Okay, what kind of, what's the literary genre that we're reading? Like those are the kinds of things we, we go, I don't even need a hermeneutical system to do that. Those are just basic principles and rules of reading anything. I think we always go there first. Now, we want to know the different hermeneutical systems. We do, right? Because we want to be able to say, this is how this hermeneutical system would approach it and this hermeneutical system approach. But what we have to realize is even if you just rely on clear hermeneutical systems, those ultimately typically get replaced and they get canceled out because even though we're claiming we're using this typical hermeneutic, what we typically start doing is we take our theological systems and they literally become the hermeneutical system. Even though we claim, no, no, I'm using this hermeneutical system. Yeah, but the way you're reading that, I don't think is even true to your hermeneutical system. You're reading it because your theological system has become your hermeneutical system. And that's what I keep trying to warn everyone about. So this is what they say. When it, now, obviously, they're, I think they're being much more pro-dispensational here. So, but I'm 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 going to you know critique that even dispensationalism can be dangerous because it can it can still become your your hermeneutic. And what I need to do is just try to allow the text say what the text says based on the words that are used. All right, but here we go. So they they go on to say this. Um, they say dispensational thinkers claim that they're at least attempting to consistently apply a literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic to the biblical text. And that hermeneutical approach, dispensational conclusions are just that, conclusions. Right? I, I, maybe in theory, maybe in theory that that's the case, maybe in theory, but I think the same thing can happen. If you're, if you have been taught, because again, most Christians who even have some familiarity with dispensationalism, see, so it, it's so subtle the way this works. You're influenced by a system. Most Christians don't ever take the time to spend hours, weeks, months, years studying the system. So they just are taught enough of the system that it begins to now become their presupposition, their preface to reading the Bible. And then they read the system into it and they don't even realize it. I think this is a major issue. They say, if we claim to hold a dispensational hermeneutic, then on the one hand, we are asserting a lack of bias and consistently applying an objective hermeneutic. While on the other, we're showing our bias by claiming a dispensational presupposition. I do agree with that. If you say you're using a dispensational hermeneutic, you're claiming that that has become your presupposition. You have a hermeneutical presupposition. And I don't, I, 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 as much as possible, I don't want a hermeneutical presupposition. I want to go, okay, what book are we in? We're in the book of Jeremiah. Okay, here we go. So what do I start realizing? Well, it starts naming a lot of nations and all the nations are 
literal. It starts naming land. The land is literal. So then I can start going, in other words, I can start, or I have to just go, it's all figurative and none of it's literal. Well, then the, the book makes absolutely no sense. So immediately I start realizing I, the book seems to demand I approach this from a certain perspective. It seems to be giving historical details that I'm interpreting as literal because history itself verifies some of it, like the Babylonian captivity, Nebuchadnezzar, some of these kings are verified by history. They're real people, real settings, and real events. So see, the text itself starts kind of guiding me there and, and trying not to approach it with any presupposition when I start reading it. But we've got to be very careful because if not, if even dispensationalism, anything can become a presupposition. They say one can't have it both ways. Dispensationalists have struggled with this to some degree. And I do agree that dispensationalists, everyone struggles with this because you always want to think, no, no, no. The Bible is the authority. The Bible is the, everyone wants to claim that, but inadvertently, not only do you ultimately become the authority, but the system becomes the authority. Even though you try to claim the system is based off scripture, in many cases, you're just simply reading the scripture into the Bible, and then you magically find it there saying then the Bible is the authority. No, you just read what you believe into the Bible. Now, they, this is a claim they make about Reformed theologians. We could get into a whole argument here, whether we agree or disagree, but their hypothesis is this. They're not stating it as a hypothesis. They're stating it as a dogmatic assertion. You can determine whether you agree or disagree. They say Reformed theologians, on the other hand, have virtually dismissed this issue altogether. So they say in the reform world, they don't really get into, wait a minute, my theological system can't become my hermeneutic, that they kind of just dismiss that entire discussion where I constantly bring it up. Even though I would classify myself in the reformed world in many ways, okay? But again, I won't make everyone in the reformed world happy, so then I, they don't like me. The non-reformed world doesn't like me because, again, I'm not, I'm not committed to your team. But here's what they say. They say reformed theologians have virtually dismissed this issue because they readily admit that theology drives their hermeneutic. They say within the reform world, now they seem to make it a dogmatic, dogmatic assertion, but they are claiming that at least by some in the reform world, they claim their theology drives the hermeneutic. And I will argue, no, theology should not drive your hermeneutic. Your hermeneutic should derive your theology. You can't allow your theological system to dictate how you exegete scripture. It cannot be the way you read scripture. I don't care if I read scripture and it doesn't agree with the London Baptist. I'm disagreeing with the London Baptist. I don't care if it disagrees with the book of Concord. I don't care if it disagrees with the Westminster. I don't care. You name the confession of faith, New Hampshire. I don't care which confession of faith. I'm not bound by any of them. Now, some people, if you're in a denomination, you have to be bound by the theological system. And therefore, you can never interpret the scripture that goes against that theological system. You're bound by a confession. Now, you can say that's a good thing because it controls everything. Well, maybe it is a good thing. But then it may, it, then guess what? What you've got to just admit our theology, our confession, our whatever document 
is our is the guide to our ex or our exegesis, and I reject I reject that. I'm not going to do that because whenever I study the Bible at any time, if I need to disagree with any doctrinal statement, I will. He said, "Well, that makes you the authority." Okay, but you're making then a document the authority. Which was written by man, not inspired. I thought this is supposed to be the scripture. That's the authority. Now, everyone will say, no, no, but our, our confession is based off scripture. Okay, maybe, but then you're going to turn around and now take the confession and it's going to guide how you interpret the scripture, meaning you can never then disagree with the confession. So not only do you make, not only make the confession the authority, it becomes infallible. Oh, it becomes a magist, it becomes an infallible magisterium. You're right back to Roman Catholicism. Except Roman Catholicism, it's people. But we, 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 we could we take that all apart. Here we go. They say, for example, they, co- they quote, Kevin DeYoung suggests that our theological system should not only inform our exegesis, but that our theological system should tell us how to exegete. I reject that. No theological system is going to tell me how to exegete. How I'm going to learn how to exegete is using the basic rules of reading and interpreting written material, words, sentence structure, definitions, the, the, the genre in which I'm reading. That should dictate. Now, I got no problem being willing to go at any point going, hey, guys, we see this, these promises here. Okay, this theological system says all of that is for the church. None of it is literal. None of it's for Israel. None of it's for Judah. But wait a minute, guys. This system says all of those promises are literal. They are for Israel and they will happen in a future. And they think the where, where it's going to happen is what's known as a millennial reign of Christ, where he's going to rule and reign for a thousand years because they believe the thousand years is literal and that it will literally happen. Now, I got no problem being aware of the two systems, but see, I'm not bound by either one. I'm not controlled by it. So I am not going to allow my theology to inform my exegesis, and I'm definitely not going to allow my theological system to tell me how to exegete. They go on to say, De Young's definition of exegesis is a good one that both reformed and dispensational would accept. And here's his definition. Exegesis is what you do when you look at a single text of scripture and try to understand what the author speaking in a specific culture, addressing to a specific audience, writing for a specific pur- purpose, intended to communicate. Now, say, I would, I agree. I would disagree with, I, I would, I'm sorry. I agree that I would agree with that definition. Let me read it to you one more time. This is how he, De Young defines exegesis. Are you ready? Exegesis is what you do when you look at a single text of scripture, And you try to understand what the author speaking in a specific culture, addressing to a specific audience, writing for a specific purpose, intended to communicate. Now, they go on to say this, but how would one's systematic theology affect one's exegesis? See, he he says that our theology should inform, should tell us how to exegete, but his definition of exegesis sounds good. So on one end, if I read his definition of exegesis, I'd be like, 
That sounds good. But he says our theology should be the driving force that tells us how to do that. And then they ask the question, how would one's systematic theology affect one's exegesis? This is what they say. Part of the problem is affirming a historical distinction between biblical scholarship and theology. The author of this article that I'm reading, and I don't have the name of the uh, of this author, but I'll, if I find it at the end, I'll tell you, says, I reject the independence of those two disciplines and affirm the dependence of one on the other. If one is not strong in the scripture, that one is not well equipped for making theological claims. Now, that's very important. If you're not strong in the scripture, you should not be making theological claims. Now, sometimes as a pastor, sometimes even as a podcaster, when people come at me, there's a tendency to go, whoa, 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 whoa. We're not going to argue this theological point. Let's find out how much you really know about the Bible. Let's go. Let's find out. How much do you really know about the Bible? And you can just start say, you can just start naming books of the Bible. Okay. Give me a summary of each book. Come on. Come on. Give me a summary of each book. Come on. And just, start. and if they don't, if they don't really know the Bible, you know what they've learned? They learned a theological system. And guess what they're doing? That theological system is driving how they understand the scripture. And I get so tired of having to deal with people that way because, because, because you can, you know, you see what's happening. You know what they, and when they start arguing with you, they run home and they're just like, what did MacArthur say? What did Piper say? What did R.C. Sproul say? What did Calvin say? And, and they just immediately run to the proponents of their system. And typically what I always tell people to do is, no, 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 no. Whenever I, someone wants to argue with me, I'll go, oh, let's do this. We're going to argue over, say, the meaning of the word Israel. Okay. I know it's used like maybe over 4,000 times. I need you to look up every use of the word Israel in the entire Bible and see, is it identifying? Is it speaking of a nation? How do you, how do you identify it? What is it actually speaking of? Oh, oh, you're going to argue about election? Well, how have you looked at every scripture in the entire Bible? No, no, don't go look what so-and-so said about it. Did you go do it? And I always will tell people, go do the work. You never have I had someone come back to me going, look, pastor, I did all the work that you asked me to do. I still disagree with you, but here's all of my work. And then I could sit there and look at their work going, okay. You, so you, 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 where, where, where are we having a difference here? You did the work. I did the work. How is our work? We got to, we now, instead of arguing, we just got to figure out where we, where, where we started having a difference of opinion and our work because somewhere we took a different road and then we can look at our work. No one ever comes to me. No, 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 no. And you'll, I always hear the excuse. Well, what good would it do anyway? Why would you even worry about what good it would do? You should want to do it for your own peace of mind because it demonstrates that you wanted to know the scriptures. But most Christians don't want to know the scriptures. They want a system because system gives them certainty, gives them the authority to tell everyone else that they're wrong. My system says your system is wrong. 
you're wrong and I'm right. Why? Because my system says so. And if I, if I argue with you, I'm going to go look up online articles written by people who promote my system, and then I'm going to regurgitate what they had to say, because I'm not going to really dedicate 40 hours of actually studying the Bible. Look, I know this is true. I, I, I've taught the Bible study methods for my entire adult life. I've taught the 12 Bible study methods. I can't get Christians to do the Bible study methods. You can beg. You can plead. Hey, use these Bible study methods all the time. You can't. You can say, we're going to do a Bible study exercise through the entire book of Jeremiah. Join us and participate. People will be like, yeah. And then they drop out. They won't do the homework. People won't do the homework. People won't put the effort in because they just want the an- they want an answer. They don't want the text. If you don't know the scriptures, you should not be making theological claims. And if I if I think back to my entire if I think back to my entire theological education, whether it was a Bible institute, whether it was a Bible college, whether it was a seminary. Because I've been to all kinds, right? I've been, I was always taught, in a sense, theological systems, systems. We even, now we would study the Bible, but it was, you had to go through it so quickly. You never really got, I, I felt like that out of all of my schooling, I learned systems. I didn't really learn the Bible. And then I was now to interpret the Bible based off the system I was given to by that particular school. That is a major problem. But we've got to learn the system, but we must be experts in the scriptures. If one is not strong in the scriptures, that one is not well equipped to make theological claims. Theological aptitude does not make for better exegesis. Let me say that again. Theological aptitude does not make for better exegesis, but it does make for better application, which should follow strong exegesis. I will argue in many cases, theological aptitude can actually blind you from biblical exegesis. Because you can, you you will take your theological aptitude and you'll read it into your exegesis. It will become the thing driving the train. What drives the train should be biblical knowledge, knowledge of the scriptures, knowledge of the book of Jeremiah, knowledge of this, knowledge of that, knowledge, knowledge, and that that should drive it. Not your theological aptitude. All of your study of scripture hopefully will build your theological aptitude. But we get. We get it wrong. They would go on to say, I would so far, I would go so far to assert, I I went, I've already gone further than they have, but the article says they will go so far to assert that not only should exegesis inform systematic theology, it should be the absolute governing principle and deriving systematic theology. I completely agree. 
So much of so much of seminary is is the system, the system, the system. We're going to study justification, and then you're taught a system, an idea about justification. We're going to be you're going to learn about sanctification. You're going to learn about whatever the case may be. You're going to learn about eschatology. You're going to learn about pneumatology, anthropology. You name and you learn the disciplines, and those disciplines are coming from guess what? Depending on which systematic theology your school is using, is it using Ryrie? Is it using Grudem? Is it using, you know, you, uh, Hodge, whichever systematic theology? Even if they don't tell you which one they're using, it's, it's being driven by it. Because it's much easier to go through those kinds of things in a semester, right? Than it is to say, you know what we're going to do for, you know, for, you know, let's say it's a four-year school, three years, all we're going to do for three years is we're going to study the text, the text, the text. The, you know what we're going to do in this school? For four years, all we're going to do is study the text, 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 the text. You're going to know the Bible front front and back, back and forward, upside down. You're going to know the scriptures. He said, well, what's the theology? We're going to study the scriptures. All right, it says, um, I would go so far to assert that not only should exegesis inform systematic theology, it should be the absolute governing principle in deriving systematic theology. Uh, L.S. Schaefer once defined systematic theology as the collecting, systematically arranging, comparing, exhibiting, and defending all facts concerning God in his works from any and every source. That definition, in my humble estimation, is far too broad. And Schaefer's otherwise solid approach, systematic theology is being derived from extra-biblical sources as well as biblical, and thus one cannot ultimately be certain that they have understood the data correctly or even identified the data properly. If systematic theology is derived exclusively from Scripture, on the other hand, then the level of certainty regarding conclusions increases dramatically. Well, I don't know if I don't know if you're. If, I don't know if you can be more sure of your conclusions, but at least you know this. You know that it all came from here. Right? I think that's important. I'm sorry for hitting the microphone. DeYoung suggests that systematic theology looks at the whole Bible and tries to understand all that God says on a given subject. While D. Young's definition here is stronger than Chaffer's, as D. Young implies the Bible is the sole source of data, D. Young's application seems to contradict the initial definition when he says that, and I quote, As a Christian, I hope that my theology is open to correction, but as a minister, I have to start somewhere. We all do. For me, that means starting with Reformed theology and my confessional tradition and sticking with that unless I I have really good reason not to. See, in this case, DeYoung is beginning with Reformed theology and the confessional tradition and reads the Bible through that lens. This is, in effect, reading extra-biblical systemized theology into the text. The danger is twofold. Number one, if the systematic theology is not exclusively and comprehensively biblical, even the most conservative Reformed theologians would admit that there is some reading between the lines in Reformed doctrines and confessions, then extra-biblical data is read into the Bible. 
Number two, reading broad context and the more narrow ones can inhibit understanding of the authoral, the author, the author's intent. Okay. Certainly we need to consider theological context and understanding a passage, but that theological context is drawn from the text itself and in consideration of near biblical context first. Allowing a theological system to help determine exegesis is not exegesis at all. It is eisegesis, at least insofar as the theology impacts the reading. By definition, exegesis is drawing out the meaning of the text, while eisegesis reads meaning into the text. De Young asserts that we must have a systematic theology in order to understand specific context, suggesting that we cannot properly exegete the text without a preformed the- theological system. He asks in a rhetorical way, without a systematic theology, how can you begin to know what to do with the eschatology of Ezekiel or the sacramental language in John chapter 6 or the psalmist's insistence that he is righteous and blameless? Well, see, I... I don't think I, that's telling you I've got to have this theological system to understand these texts. And I disagree with that. That's because now your system is determining how you understand the text. Now, there's much more here. I'm just going to read the bottom line here. I'm going to read the bottom line here. The bottom line is simple. We either submit to the author's intent, regardless of the theological outcome, recognizing that a theology is an outcome, not a starting place, or we pursue an affirmation of a predetermined theological system with uh, with which we can be content. One is submissive to the writer, the other is not. At times, both Reformed and dispensational thinkers have found themselves in various places between these two points. The challenge for both groups is to be consistent in their pursuit of submission to the divine author. Let me read that all one more time. Okay, I can't believe we've already been an hour here, but that's okay. The bottom line is a simple one. We either submit to the author's intent, that's the biblical author's intent, regardless of the theological outcome, and that's my theory. I don't care the theological outcome. I don't care. I don't care who it ticks off. I don't care who gets mad. I really don't care. If you want your little theological system because it makes you comfortable and you don't really want to study the text, then you shouldn't listen to my podcast and you definitely shouldn't come to my church. And what I've discovered is a lot of people don't want to actually deal with the text. They just want me to stand up and preach a system. And when I preach the text and I'm willing to ask the questions of the text and put forth theological hypotheses and we may come to a conclusion that don't agree with our system, people get mad and they leave. Because they don't want the text. So we either we either submit to the author's intent regardless of the outcome, or we pursue an affirmation of a predetermined theological system in which we can all be content. One is submissive to the writer, the other is not. At times, Everyone finds themselves in various places between these two points. The challenge for all of us is to be consistent and to pursue submission to the divine author. Now, you may go, that's an interesting way to preview a study on an actual system. But what I'm going to go in and like, we're going in it not to prove a system. We're going, here is a system. It's called dispensationalism. We're going to look at it. We're going to see what they say. We're going to see what they claim. But you know what? We're not bound by it. 
The same thing happened in a famous sermon that I preached at my church where we were looking at Jeremiah chapter 31, and I was going to use it as a chance to teach the system of covenant theology. I had the sermon already ready to go. And in the middle of the sermon, as I'm outlining covenant theology, all of a sudden I stop in the middle of the sermon and I look at everyone going, Some, this doesn't work. Something's not right here. We've got to stop. We got to, we got to fix this. We got to fix it. And so then we went on a long journey, creating theological hypotheses, testing and challenging. And we started coming to very different conclusions than what I was about to teach on that Sunday. Because I'm not beholden to a system. So I want you to join, I want you to join us over the next, I don't know how long as we look at a system, but we're not looking at the system to become the authority. We're going to look at the system to see how they handle the text. And then we'll look at some of these texts in which they say, this is what it means. And we'll see if we agree or disagree. But you listen, you've got to be able to identify the systems. If you don't identify the system that is guiding your exegesis, then you're never going to be able to actually exegete the scripture. Let me say it again. Your system, I don't care if it's lordship salvation. I don't care if it's covenant. I don't care if it's reformed, non-reformed, Pelagian, semi-Pelagian, whatever the issue is. I don't care if it's all millennial. I don't care if it's pre-millennial. I don't care what it is. If you have to see, you've got to identify the system and you have to be able to figure out how that system is guiding your exegesis and you've got to stop it from guiding it. You've got to stop it from doing that because I will argue over and over and over the systems blind people from the text. We're going to study a system but we're going to do so acknowledging it's a system and acknowledging that we're not bound by it, but trying to understand why they came to these conclusions. We may conclude going, you know what? I may not be bound to the system, but I definitely find myself more in agreement with that system. But at any time when I'm opening my Bible, if I feel like I don't agree, I'm going to interpret this differently. I don't care who in that system gets mad at me. Now, because I do things that way, <laughs> I'm not. I don't. I'm not going to be supported. That to try to while my church not only is it small, it's only going to get smaller, which will ultimately be the end of my ministry. I know that. I know that. I'm because because people don't want that. They they say they want the text. They don't want the text. And guess what? I'm never going to probably get, be able to be financially supported here as a podcast. I was just looking the other day, um, Moody Radio, right? They're, they put out, a, they've got, you know, Moody Radio and they put out, you know, some podcasts or about 15 minutes of teaching per what day. Um, and they were trying to raise like a million dollars to support them for the next coming year. It was some crazy amount. I've got the email. I can get the number. I'm like, well, how can they pull it off? Because they've got a certain idea and a certain system and everyone's comfortable with that. And everybody knows what they're going to be hearing, what they're going to be teaching. And I just, I just can't, I cannot be beholden to that. So I want you to just consider before tomorrow, how systems of theology has impacted your exegetical approach, how it may have blinded you 
to the text and understand that your job is to know the Bible, is to know it. The more you know it, the more you will see and the more your theology won't blind you to it. The only way to cure your blindness is to know the Bible. All right. You can email me your thoughts. Newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. That is a one hour and six minute preview of where we're going. Remember tomorrow, what you need is a notebook, a pencil, or a pen. I don't really care anymore. Um, and if you can, a physical copy of the old Schofield Bible with the 1917 notes. And if you can't get that, go on to any of your app store. Look for the Schofield Bible Notes, Schofield Study Bible Notes. You should be able to find an app that will give you access to those notes. And then tomorrow, we're going to pretend that we're, well, a brand new Christian for the very first time stumbling upon a Schofield Bible, whether it was in 1917, 1925, 1930, or today. And we're going to just do a walkthrough. It's going to be a, a completely different. You're going to be like, just start the pro, start the study and tell me the history of dispensationalism. I'm not going to do that. We're going to, we're going to just walk through it in a slow way. And, 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 and I think there's a method to the madness and hopefully you'll find it to be beneficial. All right. And then after we do that, then we'll back up and then get the history and then maybe look at it in a more in-depth way. We'll see. We'll see how it's going to work. All right. You can email me, newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. Hopefully you will join us for this study. We still got to figure out what we're going to do next for the Bible study exercise. We have Daniel and Mark really as two choices. We may do a little mixing. I don't know. Um, but we, and then we, of course, we still got the study on sanctification going on. We still have the study on law and gospel going on. I still need to do the 30 Old Testament passages with deeper meaning study. Um, and, oh, I don't know. We got a million other things to do. So uh, just be looking for all of, of the stuff that we'll be doing. And we're going to try to end the year strong. Remember, all of this content is free for you. It doesn't cost you anything. Nothing is put behind a paywall, but it is not free for us to make it available to you. Every platform costs us money to put it there. Cost us a lot. Well, it depends on how you view money. You know, about $200 a month to make sure you get, uh, you have access to this content wherever you want, whenever you want is, yeah, that's about how much it costs. So if you ever would like to help us, always remember, you can go to theologycentral.net, hit the donate tab, or on the Sermons 2.0 app or the Church One app, hit the give tab. And that money goes directly to Victory Baptist Church in Ovalo, Texas. It does not come directly to me. If the day ever changes where, let's say, that church no longer exists and I'm no longer ministering at that church, and if the money was to come to me, I would definitely tell you um, the second that I would I would give you an update that it was going to change uh, before it happened. So then you could decide how you wanted to proceed. All right. Thank you very much. And uh, email us. And uh, hopefully this gets you much to think about. Have a great day. God bless.